America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. Courage is doing what you're afraid to do. There can be no courage unless you're scared. Eddie Rickenbacker, World War I pilot. Episode 13, Kim's American Story. Welcome to today's podcast episode. I am very excited for the guest I have today. Her story is incredibly important. It's touching. It's hard. But in the end, it's victorious. And I think that all Americans need to hear her story. Kim, welcome. I'm glad that you are here today. Thank you so much for being a guest. Hi, Tina. Thank you for having me. Can you share with us where your story begins? Well, I was born in Cambodia um, uh, just a few months uh, before Cambodia was taken over by the Khmer Rouge uh, regime, um, who um, kind of a communist, uh, a communist army who took over and kind of took over all the government king there. What was it like before they came in? Um, my my mom had a really good life. My both my parents they were in the theater. My mom was pretty pretty spoiled. If I you know think about it, she was treated like a, a queen. She would go to work every day, did what she loved. She sang in the theater, uh, got makeup put on her, just looking all beautiful, and got on the stage and sang every day. And that's what she did. She just entertained um, the the people who were coming to watch the show. And when she went home, my grandmother would take care of everything. She took care of the children. She cooked the food. My mom would tell me, I'd go home and grandma would say, go take a nap. You've worked hard today. And my, my mom would go do that. And then at night she'd go party and out into the streets, eating all the food from the vendors and, and just had a really simple, easy life and just loved what she did. You come from a family of how many siblings? In, in the United States right now, I have uh, three brothers, but uh, a total, my mom had a total of eight kids. She lost four kids in Cambodia. What happens after the takeover? How does your life change? So my mom, she described it with, um, it was right after, because America was helping, you know, during the, the Vietnam War and just everything. America was there aiding uh, Cambodia and the countries near around. Um, but they pulled out and just right after they pulled out, uh, the Khmer Rouge came in um, just in tanks, you know, with uh, microphones, shooting their guns, just telling everybody, woohoo, the Americans are gone. We're going to make Cambodia so much better. And um, they asked the people to come out and you know, and the, the Cambodians, they were excited they, that these, this army's coming in, helping them, making it better because a lot of things were destroyed during that time. A lot of the agricultural lands and stuff. And so um, to them, they had hope 
that these guys were coming in. But those who were more aware of them, they were a little leery, but they also knew that, you know, we, we got to go and listen. So they told everybody to leave their homes and um, we're going to make Cambodia better. And we all went out into the forest, the woods, and uh, made camp there. Um, but my mom, she said that uh, one of their first mission was to um, get rid of anyone who was under the government, the police officers, doctors, teachers, anyone who was educated. That was their first mission uh, to get rid of them. And uh, they said it by saying, we need some volunteers to help us. And we need, you know, and they started calling all these people, police officers and stuff. And those who believed them volunteered and um, they were all executed. Can you tell us a little bit, who, who were they? Uh, they, were, they, they were just a group of people who lived out into the forest. I don't really know too much a, about them, um, except for my mom telling me the stories, but they, were, they just lived out in the farms. And from what I've read and stuff, it just sounds like because of when America came in, some things were destroyed and it was their lands destroyed, you know, with some bombing and stuff. And I'm sure that upset them. And the man who was in charge, his name was Paul Pot, And he, he was their leader. And he just felt that he could make Cambodia better. And so he was able to round out a bunch of people who were living that type of lifestyle out in the farms and stuff, um, out in the woods. And um, I don't know. I, I have the hardest time understanding how one man was that powerful to be able to get them to, to all come and do this. And, you know, and it happens in all different countries where they do. There's just for some reason one, you know, you see in movies, like this one person so powerful, but it happens in real life too. Maybe not as crazy as the movies make it, but, uh, but there's real life things that do happen in other countries that uh, so many people don't even know is happening even today that, uh, People live in fear. My family lived in fear in Cambodia with all the other people. I mean, he, he executed, he killed over a million people. Uh, just everything he was doing. So it, it's such a horrible thing that he did. And your family saw some of this, did they not? Yes. So uh, when we were asked to leave, uh, they what they did is they put... Um, families in, in different camps. Um, and in each camp, they have a Khmer Rouge captain who is over them and, you know, the soldiers and their family, their wives and everybody lives in that camp. And, um, and, you know, I was, I was only three years old when I came to America. So this is kind of memory of my mom um, telling me as I, as I was growing up here in America. Um, but uh, she, she just said that, you know, everyone was assigned different jobs. The men had to go out into the field and, and pretty much was, was doing agricultural work, trying to plant the rice and all the uh, crops and vegetables. And um, being that my mom had younger kids, my um, brother Howie and I, she stayed at the, at the camp and did different types of work, like uh, taking in the rice and take, you know, taking the peels off and, 
and uh, crushing it to make a rice powder and just different things there in the camp. And the kids um, that were older also were, were taken to a, a, their own like a teenage camp kind of thing for them to learn. But of course it was to learn from the Khmer Rouge's, the communist way of living. And some kids were brainwashed. Um, I actually read a lot of stories of people um, who experienced the same thing as my family because I, I wanted to make sure my mom's story was accurate. So I read a bunch of other people's stories and I was horrified to think they actually, even though my family went through a lot of trials and fear and everything, their stories was even worse than what my family had to go through. And, you know, and I tell people these stories, they're like, wow, but your story sounds horrible. And I said, it, it was. And that's what I mean is other people even had it worse, depending on what camp they lived in. Um, I had um, their kids who are taken away from their parents to be trained to become soldiers for the Khmer Rouge. There's uh, so many different things happening depending on where you're living. Um, but we were fortunate enough to uh, be in the camp that we were. And um, like I said, my dad, he, he had to go work out in the field and it was hot and they, they did not feed us much. Everyone would be getting the, my mom would describe just a bowl of soup with a couple grains of rice in there. And that's what we ate every day, even though the Khmer Rouge family, they all ate well, just we didn't. Were the cities evacuated then? Everybody was taken out of the cities? They were, and there were actually people who refused to leave because they didn't want to follow the Khmer Rouge and they disagreed with, and they knew they were trouble. And the Khmer Rouge had actually come back into the city and, and look and if any look around to see who is, is hiding or anything and they would kill them. Were they empty cities then? Yeah, they, they just emptied them all out. And I don't, I don't know. I think they eventually were maybe planning to go back. Um, I don't, I, I'm not sure. I just know that my mom said that we stayed out in the woods in a camp area. And uh, I think eventually later when uh, we were able to escape, I think people were then moving back. Like right now in Cambodia, uh, things are, of course, a lot better and um, have a better government and everything, and, and they're doing their best. I love it that our, our, our church is even there uh, in Cambodia, and I was excited when they announced that a temple was being built there. And so to me, that, that warms my heart to know that things are getting better for the people there. When you were in the country then, were you housed in tents? Or did you have shacks? Where did you live? You know, I'm not sure. Cause I always, I try to picture it. Cause my mom said we would all just live in this. I don't know if it was tents. I think it was still just like little shacks um, where we all live just right there in a little community is, you know, is how I'm picturing it. Um, because we lived in a, a nice home, I think when, overall when we lived in the city. But the thing is we lived in a small town. So when, um, right before the Khmer Rouge came in, we lived in Phnom Penh and I wasn't even born yet. My mom was pregnant with me and uh, she was living with her mom who was taking care of them. But when the government fell, um, her job, the theater was closed 
And so my mom and dad had to go find new work. And they ended up leaving Phnom Penh, because, which is the capital of Cambodia, because uh, there wasn't anything for them there. And so she says to my grandmother, we're going to go and, and find a place to live and, and work and everything. But can you keep some of the kids? Because this is going to be hard for us to travel with all of them and try to find work and a place to live. Um, but my grandmother told us that, uh, you know, things aren't, aren't well in Cambodia right now. And I don't think you should split up your family. And I think you should take them all. Now, now by then, I already lost three brothers. Three brothers did die uh, uh, before we moved out of Phnom Penh. Um, they just died different different reasons that was, you know, nothing to do with, with the Khmer Rouge, but just snake bites and different things. Just illness, um, got sick and, and stuff. And so, um, so my mom took my grandmother's advice and uh, left with my uh, si sister, my, my two older brothers, and then myself. And then we Oh, no, sorry, not me. I wasn't born yet. Sorry, just told that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I never actually met my grand grandparents. Um, so because she, she was pregnant with me. And so we went to, and I don't even know, it sounds funny. But I don't even know what city I was born in because my mom can't remember the name of the city. All she tells me is that it was a place where they mined stones. They were able to, you know, mine the jewels out and, and stuff. And so um, that's where uh, we lived. And so it was a small town. It wasn't like Phnom Penh. So I think maybe in Phnom Penh, things could have been different than uh, where we live. It's just my mom said that they had us evacuate the little town we we're in for now. And, and it's possible we may have gone back and lived there, but according to my mom's story, it sounds like we stayed in some little camp that, that, uh, for three years there. Well, we just worked. What did your older siblings have to do then? Were they, did, because they were older, were there special things they had to do? I only know my oldest brother, who was um, probably 10 maybe when they, the Khmer Rouge came in. And um, he, for some reason, wasn't taken away like other teenagers to the camp to learn to become soldiers and get brainwashed that their parents are awful and stuff. He stayed in town uh, in the camp that we we're at and he just uh, once in a while would go to the kind of like the boys and girls club kind of thing there in the camp for them to, to learn some things. But his, his, his work was to just be around and he was, he was a good guy even at 10 years old he was kind and, and loving to everybody. And he, and his name is Mo. He went to, um, he would, I think the, the Khmer Rouge women favored Mo because he was always willing to help them. And I don't know if that just made our life easier because he didn't cause trouble and stuff. Anytime he saw one of the women needing help with something, he'd always volunteer to help them and just run over and and help them and hearing that story has always been a great example to me of no matter how someone treats me or how they are i'm going to try my best to be kind to them and hoping that i can soften their heart for them to be kind to and it was 
So kids were taken away at 10 years old, as young as 10 uh, years old. Kids were taken away even younger. And I think it was just depending on the camp. Overall, I think the captain of our camp, he was a good man. Um, but you got to remember that they, they too live in fear. They could either go against Paul Pot and get executed or just act like, all right, I'm going to take this leadership and, and be the captain so that my family survives. I'm sure the people who were in that army also were afraid and they just had to. Was there a lot of disease? What was the education like? There wasn't any, and that's why they, they, um, their first mission was to get rid of those who were educated. The way I understand it, just interpreting all that is, I'm sure they were afraid that they would find a way to um, take over and be uh, smart enough to, to um, take Cambodia back, and they didn't want that, and that's why they got rid of all the doctors and stuff. And doing that, the people were sick. They, they were malnourished. A lot of people died. Uh, and just because they had no medicine, they had no, um, no health care there since they killed all the doctors. And those doctors who were smart enough, they, because at the beginning, they would interview everyone and say, what is your occupation? What do you do and everything? And those who were doctors, they would say, I'm a farmer. I'm not educated. And when they said that, they were free to go and move into their where whatever camp they were assigned to. Um, but those who said that they were a doctor, they were taken to another another area. Um, I think my, my mom said one time she heard that they put a bunch of them in a, a loaded them in a bus and just drove it down some cliff or some or hole or something and killed them all that way. I mean, there were different ways of how um, they kill people, but I think their, their goal was to uh, get rid of all those who would be able to, to uh, beat them because they wanted the power. There was no medical help then whatsoever? No, and um, my mom said they would, you know, it would just be the people who were caring for the sick. And she said that, or it may have been from a book I read, but someone was saying that they would give them like an ice cube, you know, I mean, an ice cube, sugar cube, like it's medicine, like, they didn't have anything, but maybe psychologically, mm. the patients think that they're getting taken care of, and so they hand them that. Um, but I, I did hear about that one time, and so they just did their best. Like everyone was living in fear. Did you have, or did they have access to any technology whatsoever, radio, anything? Not that I know of. No, I, I. I think, no, cause like they had weapons and stuff. And I know my mom said they got to the point where they didn't want to waste their bullets on the people and that they would just use the head of the gun, the butt of the gun to hit them in the head to execute them instead that way because they were wasting their bullets on these people. Do you know, were they subject to regular, I don't even know what you'd call it, um, updates or information from those in charge, feeding them whatever indoctrination, anything like that? You know, I don't know, but maybe they did have some kind of like, because um, like they had microphones and tanks, so I assume they probably had some kind of radio for each other. Um, 
but my mom never knew. And I, I guess I, I should have probably ask her about that, but um, she ne was never explicit in anything. My mom wasn't really educated. She, when she worked in the theater, she memorized everything. She never learned how to read or anything. She just memorized the songs. And as they practice, she just memorized, all right, this person's going to do this. So I know that's my turn next. And that's, that's how she did. So she was never really that educated. And so for her in the camp, her concern was just uh, taking care of our family. And um, I think it was a few months after I was born, after the Khmer Rouge came in, sometime that year in 1975 is when my dad passed away and he just got sick. He, he, he did his usual job going out in the field in the 100 plus degrees weather there in Cambodia. And um, he was really hot one day and, and jumped in the river to cool down. And just after that, he was sick. And um, I try to get my mom to describe, uh, since she doesn't really have any records of anything since all records were destroyed. And she said, he just didn't feel well. And as she described it, his symptoms, it sounded like he had pneumonia. Mm. But he got from, from everything. Maybe it was being malnourished, working so hard, and then went into the water. And um, my mom's more of a cause and effect kind of person. And so being that there was no doctors to even say what was wrong with my dad, he just uh, stayed in our house that we lived in and um, was sick and just wasn't able to do anything. So I'm assuming he had fevers and everything, but he eventually died from that. Are you grateful that you don't remember a lot of that time or do you wish you knew more so you could piece it together? Uh, sometimes I do wish I, I knew more. Um, you know, I, I, I shared my book with you that I wrote for my children um, just because I want them to know our story. Uh, genealogy is important to me and I can't do genealogy uh, because all records were destroyed in Cambodia. And so we didn't have anything. My mom said my dad was the one that had our records. He wrote everything down, wrote everyone's birthday. We don't even know when our real birthdays are because my mom didn't know. She just always knew what year by, once again, my mom wasn't educated. And so she knew what year the animal was through the Chinese calendar. They just kind of go with the year of the animal. And so she just remembers I'm year of the, of the tiger. And so she, I don't know how she chose the birth date or anything um, because in 1979 is when um, we escaped Cambodia. And uh, we were actually in fortunate, like I told you, the captain of her camp actually came to her and said, you need to take your, your family and leave because we're, we're losing, pretty much he was saying. And the Vietnam soldiers are coming in. There were different types of armies. Um, I read another book about um, just a bunch of Cambodian people trying to rebel and you know bring get their country back and I'm at a blank right now and I can't think of that name of the army so there are two types of army in there but he um the Khmer Rouge captain said that um you need to leave tonight because the Khmer Rouge are taking prisoners with them because they know they're losing and so I, I feel so blessed and blessed that uh 
he had the courtesy to come and tell us that to leave. And so a lot of people all over were out walking in the, the woods trying to find, a, you know, where to go and stuff. And my mom came to a path where she can go towards Phnom Penh to find her parents and siblings or go towards Thailand, um, hoping to save her, her children since she's already lost her husband. My older sister also uh, was killed by the Khmer Rouge. And so she just had my oldest brother, Mo, and Howie and myself left to take care of. But she so desperately wanted to go back to Phnom Penh to find her family. But the people who were with her escaping too uh, told her that she doesn't even know if her family's still alive and that what's she going to do when she goes there. Right now she needs to think of her children and uh, get them safe. And so she followed all the people to walk to Thailand. I can't even imagine the plight of the Cambodian people, <laughs> the Khmer Rouge on one side, and then the Vietnamese soldiers. Yep. Yeah. There's not a winning side there for them. There isn't, no, because the Vietnamese also wanted to come and take over Cambodia. They wanted to, I mean, that's power. Power is important to a lot of people. And uh, they see their opportunity. And so, yeah, so it was scary because uh, you just don't know who you're going to run into when you're, when you're escaping out in the woods. And uh, we were very lucky. I think Mo learned, Mo learned a lot from the Khmer Rouge because they're the ones that uh, buried a bunch of landmines. They're still, I mean, they have an organization still today um, trying to find all the landmines that were buried back then. Um, and they can still explode. They could still explode. Oh my gosh. I, I, I haven't, I should probably look into it to see if, uh, you know, if they're still in, but from the last I, I read about it, they, that they had an organization that was just trying to uh, find all of them because there were people who would just walk and it would happen. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know how, how true it is if there's still more or not, but I know a couple years ago there still were. Now remind me, I'm sorry, you said your mom lost four children? She did. So she lost my three brothers. And then my sister, she was, I'm guessing, around seven or eight. She was under Mo and above Howie, so her age-wise. And she was just hungry and wanted to, just tired of not having food. So one night she chose to go into a cornfield to get some corn um, just so that she can have some food since they weren't feeding us anything. And she got caught stealing the cornfield. Some, my mom said some man was visiting the Khmer Rouge there. And um, so she came back into camp running back and told my mom that she got caught and apologized to my mom. And the Khmer Rouge took her out and called everybody in the camp to come out and they and they beat her. They beat her to, to use her as an example to the people around that you don't steal from us and just uh, put some more fear in them. And they said to my mom, don't cry. I want you to stand here and watch this because she made a mistake. And uh, so they, they beat her. There was the men and women 
they're all in there beating her, her up. And um, my mom just had to stand there and watch the whole thing because she didn't want anything else to happen to her children. And so she, uh, she just stood there and watched them beat her daughter. And my dad, he was, he was sick at the time too. And he wasn't aware this was happening. He was just, you know, laying in the house, just not really know what's going on. And um, after that, my sister was also the same, just injured and just uh, laying in the house. And uh, a few weeks later, she passed away. I don't know exactly when from the time of her beating till when she passed, but uh, she just said to my mom, I, I had enough of this life and I'm ready to go. And she was eight? Yeah, she was, uh, yeah, she was around eight is what my mom said. Is she, is she still living your mom? She is. She's living in the Seattle, Washington area. I can't even imagine. I'm sure you can't either as a mother, how strong she, I, I mean, I, to think about standing there and watching that happening to one of your children and not be able to show any emotion. Yes. I think about that all the time as I have three daughters myself and they're my pride and joy. And I, of course, would never want anything to happen to them. And, you know, I think of, of her having to watch my sister, the only sister I had growing up. I've watched people with sisters and the relationships they have with their sister. You know, I had brothers, which I love my brothers, but it's just not the same as you see two sisters bond. And so I always wish I had known my sister and um, had that relationship that I see. I'm so jealous of so many sisters out there that have that relationship and that was taken from me. Um, and so I, I, I'm so grateful for my mom's strength and because of her strength, my grandmother's strength, all the women in my life, their strength has strengthened me in the way I live and look at my life today. How did you get out of Cambodia? So we uh, walked with everybody else. Uh, try to, you know, I try to get my mom to tell me like, how long did it take us mom to, to get out of Cambodia? And she said it took weeks. Um, Cause you know, it's walking. We walked all the way to the border of Thailand, which is where everyone else did, walked. And um, she witnessed people dying on the way. But Thailand was overwhelmed, which I would be too if I was the, the president or king of Thailand to have all these refugees come to their um, country. They didn't know what to do with all of them. And so unfortunately, their only... A resolution to it was to send us back and they the soldiers came and says hey we're gonna take you all to a place and my family was was one of one of the people that they put on a bus and they drove us right back to the forests of Cambodia and my mom was so angry because she's like I walked so far I did all this and you're taking me right back and you know and, and I I try to look at the perspective of everything that that would be overwhelming for Thailand. They have their own people that they need to care for and then to have all this. And so many did have to go back. And I read a book that there was also, you know, other families who had the same situation as us was returned in a bus back to uh, 
Cambodia. And so we just lived down the woods and eventually we found a cave, all the people that we were with, and we stayed in the cave for about a month. My mom calls it a mountain. So I think the way I describe that is it was a cave. And we just live off of anything that we could find. We ate bark, tree branches, you know, moss, whatever we can find in the forest. My brother Mo, um, he, he was smart and helped us find food. Uh, for some reason, I don't know why, but when we were at the border of Thailand, some old gentleman, a Thai man, handed my mom $100. It's probably, it's probably 100 Thai money, so I don't know what that is equivalent to. Um, but he gave it to my mom. And so she gave that money to Mo and says, go out and try to find us some food. And so he went out and he was able to knock at somebody's house and was able to get a few things with that $100 from them. And he brought it back and we were able to feed my family and all the people who were living in that cave uh, for a little longer. And so we're grateful for Mo's uh, ability to be able to do that because that's a scary thing to do, knowing that there's soldiers out there and landmines and and my mom, you know, didn't know if he'd make it back, but we were desperate. And so, but while we were living in the cave, um, some man shows up dressed like a Khmer Rouge soldier and everyone was frightened. They're like, oh no, they found us. And he explained himself that he's actually working for the Americans and he's been trying to find survivors and wants to help. And so he did it the proper way instead of, you know, every refugee overwhelming Thailand. He went back to Thailand and talked to the government and says, hey, I found a bunch of people and what can I do? Because America wants to help and all these other countries want to help these people. And so, and I don't, he was from some organization. There's a article written about me in, in this front page of the Seattle Times that I was able to find. And my mom described it, uh, the Red Cross is um, the organization. So I'm not sure if that they were the organization or not, but he, um, he was able to do the proper paperwork that Thailand asked him to do and um, was able to get us all back over to, and like I said, we didn't go into Thailand. It was just uh, the, right at the border. These organizations, they set up a little camp for everybody and they all waited there for um, their turn to go somewhere to find refuge. And when my mom filled out the paperwork and you know, at that time Mo was working, trying to make some money for us just so we can have food. And they did, the organization did have food for people. And I don't know why, but my mom's like lowered all of our ages because they said the younger you are, the more food they will give you. And my mom wanted to make sure we all got food. And Mo was at an older age. I think my mom said he was like 12, 13 years old and uh, knew that he wouldn't get as much. So she did lower his age um, for that purpose. And so they fill out paperwork and they ask, you know, where, where do you want to go? Because there's Australia, France, America, all these different places that had organizations that were helping um, the Cambodian people and even other people in different countries that were struggling also in the Asian country. And uh, she, for some reason, chose Seattle because somebody there says, I heard Seattle's a good place. So she goes, okay. And so she chose Seattle 
And around that time, um, the organization in Seattle was, you know, rounding up sponsors to sponsor a family near their home. And we had a sponsor. And then for some reason, the night before that sponsor backed out and decided we can't do this. I, I don't know the reason or what, but um, Patty and Phil Kropelnicki, they're the ones that got a phone call late at night. It was, I think Patty said it was like nine, 10 o'clock at night. And this lady says, I need your help. I have this single mom with three children uh, coming in tomorrow morning. And, um, but they, we need a family to sponsor them and the family that was going to um, backed out on this. And I'm just calling to see if you guys are willing to help. Now, you know, keep in mind these, this, the Kropelnikis, they had their own life. They had their own children to care for and stuff, but they didn't hesitate. And they just said, yes, we'll be there. And so we're grateful for them who were willing to, um, to help our family. And so then, we made it to Seattle and they got us all settled in, went through the welfare program to, to get us help and everything. I think it is hard to fathom for most of us, if not all of us listening, about everything that your family experienced, living in the camps, walking how many miles every day for days upon days, camping by the side of the road, who knows what you're eating for food, living in a cave, eating bark. In my mind, I can't even grasp that. Right. I can't even grasp that. You have a lot of, I can tell a lot of admiration for your older brother, for Mo. Yes, I mean, I, I do for all my brothers, but when my mom told me the story, you know, I think about how Mo, Mo saved us. Um, I was very malnourished. I had, you know, if you ever see the, the videos of please donate and help these third world countries with their protruded bellies and you can see their bones, that's what I looked like. And I couldn't stand, I couldn't sit, I couldn't do anything, I couldn't walk. And so my mom and brother carried me all the way and none of us could swim. Mo was the only one that knew how to swim. And so when we would come across a river, he would swim one person at a time across, swim back and grab the other person, including my mom who couldn't swim. And um, he knew where to walk for some reason. I just feel God had a hand in all this too, because you know I think of all the things that happened to our family and I'm like, why us? You know, why did we survive this? Why did other families not? I lost my dad and sister, my, my stepdad. My mom met my uh, stepdad when we were in Seattle and he too lost his family he, and he was scheduled to be edu executed. And so just all these things that happened in my life, I'm like, why? And so I, I, I'm so grateful that Mo had the skills and the ability and strength to help us um, survive. Um, and then I think just all the people that were placed in our path, even the people who encouraged my mom to keep going this way, don't go find your family. You know, just, I feel like God's hand was in everything. 
And I think because of that, I have a different perspective in life. I appreciate what is placed in front of me. And um, I may have days where I don't have much, but I have more than I did. I have more than others. And I'm so grateful for my life. Well, your, little, your older brother was, was a little boy that had to grow up. The Kroplenikis actually ended up uh, raising him because uh, he was, um, my mom was alone and they, they, they had such a big heart. And they're like, how can we help you? And they asked if they could take one of her children. And of course, she thought, they said, can we take your children? She's like, no, you can't take my children. I just made it to America. Now you want to take my children? They're like, no, 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 we just want to help. And so um, they ended up raising Mo because my mom felt that he wasn't going to learn English as well as we would. Because Howie and I, Howie and I were a lot younger. And so we were exposed, you know, at mm -hmm. learning the language, but him being a little older, she felt he would struggle. And I think that was a good decision too. Growing up, what language did you speak at home? So um, I spoke Chinese to my mom. My, my stepdad, he was um, Cambodian is what he spoke. And so I spoke broken Cambodian. I even spoke broken Chinese, but I spoke Chinese more. Um, and so English was with my stepdad and Chinese is with my mom. Even today, I still speak Chinese, but my Chinese dialect is very ancient. I speak Chowcho, which is a very ancient dialect that most people do not speak. Like if I'm out in public and I hear someone speaking my dialect, I'm like, oh my goodness, someone speaks my dialect because it's usually Mandarin or Cantonese is the most popular dialect. Can you indulge us and say a sentence in that? Oh, <laughs> I'm curious to hear what it sounds like. Um, so usually with my girls, because I, I, there's only a few words that I, I taught them. I, I wish I did better at teaching them my Chinese, but I guess I had the attitude of no one really speaks my dialect, so I never did, and I regret that. But I'd always sell, tell them to say thank you to the people, teaching them respect, but I'd say it in Chinese to them, and I'd always say, that joy see which means say thank you. And then they would say thank you. And it was my way of kind of telling them without the person knowing that I'm making them say thank you. <laughs> well, you know, I really loved speaking with someone who's so passionate about your genealogy, about your family history. And it, it breaks my heart that you're not able to do more of that. Have you been able to go back to Cambodia? I haven't. So we, my family with Jeff and I, Jeff is my husband, and um, we're celebrating 25 years this summer. Oh, happy anniversary. Congratulations soon. Thank you. <laughs> so we, we've always said, oh, maybe when we hit 25 years, we will we'll go back to Cambodia because we would like to bring our girls to go see because, you know, they've always heard stories. It, it's always been important to me, um, which is why I wrote the book for them to always know where their heritage came from and for them to appreciate what they have today because so many people in their path has, has worked so hard for what they have today. And I think that's what America has. You know, We have great history of so many people who have fought for our country so that we can have what we have today and we should be grateful for that. And so anyways, 
I've always shared my Cambodian story with my girls, but none of us have ever seen it. I've never been back. I don't even remember anything at all. And so we would like to go soon, maybe next year. Before we always said 25, but my, my daughter, Kyla, graduates college next year. So we we're thinking maybe to celebrate, our whole family can go to celebrate uh, her graduation in Cambodia. Well, let me end this conversation with two questions. And you've, you've kind of answered the first one. What would you like people in America to understand about what we have here and what does America mean to you? You know, I actually share my story wanting people to recognize what they have and how fortunate they are that we have so much. Uh, you know, I was talking about, I've been listening to your podcast too, and I think what you're doing is a great thing, sharing people's American stories. Luis said something in, in the, when you interviewed him, and he was saying how we live like kings and queens from other countries. And, and we do, we have so much, we have so much freedom and um, we have choices here. We can do whatever we want and it's up to us on how we wanna apply our, in our lives and do it. And there's so much good in this world, in our, in our country. And, um, and I think that people, um, in America is what makes it great. And I know I, I, I struggle and I was teasing about just America in general. Of, there are some people who does not make America as great. And, but that's just a small percentage of them. And I think overall, there's the majority of people in America do feel the same way about America as I do that we live in such a wonderful country and we are so blessed and and have this freedom and you know I'm grateful for my heritage to look back at and to compare what my grandmother went to I mean she was sold as a, a slave from her her dad had to make the decision of um, selling one of his child so that the rest of the family could survive and so she was a slave to a very mean Chinese family. And, and then I think about my mom who went through all that and my, my dad, both my dad and stepdad, all that they went to, that I'm so grateful for my heritage that I can compare my, my life today and how blessed I am. And I hope people recognize that, that we are fortunate to live in America, to have all these beautiful things around us. And um, when we think of complaining because my iPhone didn't do this or, you know, something that's so little, I hope they look at the big picture of, of what we have today and that we are so lucky to live here in America. Thank you, Cam. Thank you for sharing your American story. Thank you so much for having me, Tina. I was blown away with the courage Kim showed in sharing her American story. There were brutal, painful memories, but because she chose to share, we are better. Kim and her family suffered heartbreak and unrelenting fear, but Kim's mom had the courage to ensure her children reached safety. At first glance, Kim's story may seem tragic. Indeed, there are tragic parts. 
but the whole story is one of courage and gratitude. Gratitude for her American home. Join me next Friday for Shane's American Story. Hear how a high school dropout, sometimes homeless young man, created a YouTube empire worth millions. It is the story of resiliency and hard work culminating in the American dream. And finally, if you are enjoying the We the People, Our American Story podcast, please leave a review and give me a rating. Subscribe to hear future episodes and tell your friends and family. Until next Friday, see you then.